Yeah, basically, when when you have an, an internet that's entirely you know composable in a permissionless way, the, the the limit is just like imagination, right? It's like what what will developers do with all this open data, all these composable sort of APIs that you don't have to ask anyone permission to use. You know, the, the limit just becomes imagination, and and that's why it goes from looking like a toy to being you know to changing the world. Is like developers will just come up with really impressive stuff to do with it. Hey everyone, if you have been listening to Empire, you know that Santi and I are fed up with unaffordable fees and frustrating transaction speeds that make the on-chain experience basically unusable. So the Arbitrum team reached out and they showed us the platform. They showed us what you can do on Arbitrum. Whatever you're doing, you can experience frictionless transactions at lightning speed on Arbitrum. So head over to portal.arbitrum.io and check it out. What's up, everyone? Before we jump into today's episode, I'm excited to share Empire's first ever security partner. Harpy is the best tool to prevent your wallet from theft in real time. Harpy is not just a security solution. They are a peace of mind solution. But don't just take our word for it. Harpy is the only wallet security solution that protected 100% of its users from attacks like the Ledger one in Q4, which was an off-chain signature attack. To learn more about Harpy, click the link in the show notes or visit at harpy.io forward slash empire. What's up, everyone? Before we jump into the episode, little plug for Digital Asset Summit coming up in London, March 18th to 20th. Tickets are pacing so far ahead of schedule that we had to decrease the discount code. So instead of Empire 20, it is now Empire 10. Head over to the website, Digital Asset Summit, Das London, March 18th to 20th. Use code Empire 10 and get 10% off your ticket. See you in London. All right, everyone. Welcome back to Empire. We have uh, Jesse from Varian Antonio back on the show from Spindle. Guys, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, All right. So we are here to talk about, here's like my ideal outline for the show that I want to cover. Frames have taken Twitter by storm, uh, or I guess you could say kind of Farcaster by storm. Frames are this thing on Farcaster. Everyone's talking about them. I want to talk about them, but I think we should do that in the context of uh, Jesse's recent piece and kind of framing of these things called headless marketplaces. So Jesse, I think I'll pick on you to kick us off. Before getting into headless marketplaces, there is a uh, idea that you pick, I think that you piggybacked on, which was headless brands. I don't know if you remember this 2019 piece from uh, Sam Hart, uh, other, and then I think it was yeah. Laura and Toby. Um, yeah, the and, other crew. Yeah, I love, love yeah, that piece. Yes, exactly. So I was like, ah, Jesse, man of culture here. All right. So there was this 2019 piece about headless brands. So what do you mean by what is what does headless mean to you here? Yeah, well, first, I should say there's another headless thing or, you know, term of art out there, which is headless CMS, which, you know, de- right. developers will, thought I was talking about that. And, you know, other folks have thought I was talking about headless brands. Um and, and to be totally honest, when, when I crafted the term headless marketplace, I wasn't explicitly thinking about either of those two things. I was really just thinking about smart contracts. Um, that was sort of the, the inspiration for this term. And, and I'm going to get into that. But I guess I'll start by just sort of offering the definition, which I gave um, for headless marketplace, which is basically a market that leverages global on-chain identity, money, and data while distributing the market locally, wherever a user's wallet already is. And I'm, I'm, I'm reading this from a tweet that I posted. I, I kind of was just thinking on the fly. Um, and, and at the time that I tweeted this, you know, Frames hadn't launched yet. And I actually wasn't thinking about um, Farcaster. I was thinking about Telegram bots. Um, and, you know, how one thing we've been seeing is there's these bots that you can use on Telegram that give you a wallet. And through that wallet, you can interact with any smart contract on chain. You can you know, swap on Uniswap or on you know on any on any Dex on Solana. Um, and so I was just sort of mulling over the fact that in your Telegram group chat, you can access this global market of on chain liquidity with your local identity and all the data you know that you have on on device and so on, and never visit a third party application to, to do that. And this has been a thing in crypto for a while. But I think the, the, the key difference now is we're starting to see apps come to users where they already are. And, and those apps are hitting critical mass in terms of distribution. Telegram's got 100 million plus users. And now we're starting to see Farcaster you know, hit an inflection point um, in terms of its daily active users. So that, that's why I'm you know, excited about this idea. Um, it's sort of an old idea that's, that's new again. 
And as I published it, I was thinking, you know, the people who were around for the web two version of this, they're going to, they're going to read this post and they're going to be like, yeah, duh. Like this, you know, this, this idea has been around for decades. Right. Um, so maybe that's a good segue for Antonio. I don't know. Well, before, be- maybe before we jump into that. Okay. So a headless marketplace is this market that leverages on-chain identity and you're basically money and data and distributes. I think the keyword here is locally. So instead of mm-hmm. going to the marketplace, you're going to actually where the user is and where they want to spend time. How is this different than what the world looks like today outside of crypto? Well, yeah, today, like most marketplaces are destinations. Like you have to go to a website, you got to install, install an app or, um, or, or something like that. And, and when you do that, you have to sign up for a new account. You have to put in profile data. You have to put in your credit card. Um, so there's all this friction basically to, to you know, participating in, in a marketplace. You got to go there and, and put in all this stuff. Um, and, and with headless marketplaces, the, the marketplace comes to you. And I think that the key difference between Web 2 and Web 3 is when the marketplace comes to you, it's coming to your wallet. And, and what's in your wallet is an, you know, an identity, money, and profile data that's already there. It's all pre-populated. Your entire on-chain history is there. You know, the, the assets in your wallet are there. And, and so the friction to participating in a new market is basically zero, right? Like you don't have to go to this destination and put all the data. It, it, it's all just, it comes to you and it's pre-populated. Um, so that, that is, I think why frames are, well, we're going to get to frames, but that's why headless marketplaces I think are so exciting in crypto is that, you know, it, on the one hand, it reduces the friction for developers to bootstrapping liquidity and getting part, new participants to jump into a new market. And from the perspective of users, it's just a better experience because you, you know, you don't have to jump through all these hoops. What's the difference between your, okay, so traditional marketplace world looks like this. You go to a website, whether it's Airbnb or Charles Schwab or whatever it is, you sign up for a username, put in your password, put in your address, credit card, all that kind of stuff. And it that's the destination. The marketplace is the destination. And what you're envisioning is you're saying, basically, instead of thinking about a marketplace as an app, you're thinking about a marketplace as a network that can be embedded anywhere else, that can basically be embedded is that right? Yeah, exactly. Like, and 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 folks um, who, who are deep in crypto will, will will maybe you know know exactly what I'm talking about here. When if if you go and open your MetaMask or Phantom wallets, in those wallets, you know one of the key functions is the ability to swap. And you know, so there's a marketplace embedded in your wallet. Um, what's happening on the back end is those wallets are you know taking your order and they're going routing routing it on chain or you know they're routing it somewhere. But they're bringing the the liquidity to you, right? So they're, they're and and you know that liquidity can be permissionlessly accessed by anyone. So that's probably the most primitive example of a headless marketplace. It's the, it's the swap function in your wallet. Um, but you, I think you can extend this idea really to any type of marketplace that is on chain um, and any type of um, sort of user interface that has a wallet embedded in it. Would it be fair to say that Uniswap was the first headless marketplace? Yeah, that's, I think, I mean, maybe not the first, but probably the most, you know, well-known. Okay. Right. The the, the most well-known and the most widely used headless marketplace, I think, is is, is Uniswap, right? Because it is the smart contract, all the liquidity is on chain. And then there's lots of different front ends that have integrated it um, and and brought the market liquidity to wherever, you know, that interface's users are. Why is this such a big unlock? So let's say, let's maybe pick, so the three of us on this call understand maybe the unlock, but let's say I'm uh, maybe not as crypto native and maybe I don't play as much in crypto world. I'm like, look, marketplaces, I don't know. I kind of like going to Airbnb.com. They got a nice UI for me and it's and it works well. Or like I trade my stocks on, on TD Ameritrade and it's all good for me. I log into my TD Ameritrade account. Like what is the unlock here and like the 10x better user experience? Well, I, th- I think you you could approach you could approach answering this again from the developer perspective and then from from the end user perspective. And I think for developers, it's it's a huge unlock because it's a it's a new distribution channel. And you know, one of the hardest problems any you know anyone building a startup faces is how do I get people to care about this thing or find out about it and, and play around with it. And um, with with headless marketplaces, if if there are destinations where you can ship your marketplace to the user where they are, that means you have a new distribution channel to go and and, and acquire new users, um, and and that's that's huge, right? I think um, 
Antonio will be able to speak to this, but when Facebook kind of had open APIs and allowed users to or developers to build on top of the platform, it was a huge boon um, for for a lot of projects that did that, including Spotify um, and others. Right? They they got massive distribution through this channel. So that's the developer side of it. I think on the user side, um, it's it's the fact that you can have fundamentally better user experiences, and, and this goes back to what I was saying earlier, when the market comes to you. And it's tightly coupled to your social feed. So that, that's unique to Farcaster and, and Telegram where, you know, the marketplace is happening in a social setting, in your group chat, in, you know, your social feed. Um, this, this allows for new kinds of marketplaces that are kind of social first. Um, and we haven't seen a ton of innovation in, in social over the last decade. There's these kind of like dominant platforms, um, you know, that don't have a, a really sort of, I guess, fast moving feature set. Um, and so, you know, better use, better and new user experiences are going to get opened up for, for end users. Can I, can I run that you. for a second? Can yeah, yeah. Help yeah. Answer, answer the question a little bit. Like, the, the cool thing that this enables is what is an embedded inline experience, which is really weird in Web3, right? Like, just to speak like a marketer for a second, in Web2, I saw a thing in my social feed or somewhere. I click on it. I go to the landing page. I have to sign up for the thing. I have to enter a payment credential. I go to the experience, and then there's a confirmation page. Right. And like my company spindle, like, or, 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 you know, billion dollar companies like amplitude mix panel exist just to sit there and document that funnel. But what if we just compress that such that uh, a friend of mine shared, Hey, I'm really vibing to X piece of music. And then there's actually like a frame with like a Spotify with like a play button. And I can actually do it right in there. Or you cited the example of like, how is this different than Schwab? I'm reading a piece about how Facebook jumped 18% today in the market. And there's actually a widget that says buy 100 shares of Facebook and it just works, right? Like right. you could like you could enable things with this that like don't exist in Web2. And as as mm. proof of lack of existence, think of what Amazon would pay for a one-click ad that they could show you. Like you abandon the thing in the shopping cart, you go back to the New York Times and like one-click purchase. It, it doesn't exist because you, you can't enable it. <laughs> there's no way totally, to yeah. do it. But you you can natively do it in Web3 because as Jesse said, all the identity, I mean, the money side, the identity, the login has been kind of outsourced, so to speak, to this consensus mechanism that everyone can just have access to. And it's permissionless, right? Like getting to the Facebook thing. And at some point, we probably want to get into that story. A lot of the reason why Spotify didn't invest in that relationship is because they understood that at the end of the day, Facebook held all the cards. And so, you know, it was very difficult for them to start build very Facebook native experiences because it, it wasn't this permissionless sort of trustless environment. You, you know, do, do I, should I go into the Facebook, like... Flash well, I, I'm, I'm gonna like let me just share one story story for sure. people for people who haven't been following like headless marketplaces and didn't read Jesse's post yet and haven't been following F frames and Farcaster. The way that I tried to explain it to a friend uh, the other night over dinner is uh, in inside of your. I actually think Instagram has done a good job of this. Is um, previously you had uh, in, uh, Instagram like in Instagram if you saw like a. I don't know, a t-shirt that you really liked, you had to leave and then go to like Shopbop or something. And Instagram actually has embedded that Shopbop is a marketplace and like these uh, clothing stores are marketplaces for, for clothes. And uh, now inside of Instagram, you can basically do that native shopping inside of Instagram and you never have to leave Instagram. And imagine a world with, I think the vision for headless marketplaces is, okay, well, you can kind of do that for shopping inside of Instagram, imagine every single place where you spend time, if every marketplace that you ever wanted to buy anything on could be embedded inside of that place where you spend time. Is that a fair way to frame this? Totally. Yeah, I think, I think that's exactly right. Yeah, and think about just to, to be a hard-nosed marketer for a second, think what the conversion rate must be on that unit, right, to buy the thing. It's way better than jumping through five hoops. And it also increases time on site on the original publisher site. I hate to sound like an MBA, but it's kind of a win-win in the sense that you're still stuck inside Forecast or Instagram. On the same time, you're, you're actually converting, like you are generating revenue for the outside partner, right? And for the user, right? It, it is just, it's just easier, right? So it's just like, it's a win-win-win for everyone. Right. Win-win-win. Oh, Three wins. The, the, the all coveted, yeah. Uh, Antonio, take us into Facebook. The year is 2011. T take us in here. <laughs> right, so I had this whole like Web2 Boomer flashback thing when I realized that the frames implementation was using a thing called Open Graph, which, you know, for those younger than 30, probably have no idea what, what I'm talking about. But back in 2011, I was like a mid-level PM at Facebook on the ads team. There were six PMs on the ads team. The ads team was kind of, you know, kind of a ghetto, kind of isolated from the main product. Or we're trying to, the, the ad system didn't work basically. My position was terrible, given how much usage there was. 
And suddenly out of the blue, Zuck, the platform team, the product team, people, you know, way more important than the ads team at Facebook said, we're going to do this thing called platform and open graph. What was the point of that? So again, think back, the like button, right? Like this little button with like the little thumbs up was all over the web. So you would read a thing on the Wall Street Journal, like it, and it might show up in your feed. The, the idea, which is kind of a good one, was, well, why don't you expand the vocabulary of verbs to, you know, watched, read, engaged with, whatever, like, the, you know, all the verbs, right, that one does living your life online. And the cool thing would be to have, you've got the social, like the web was being made social, right? I was expecting, web one wasn't social, like you'd go read a blog post and maybe a buddy commented on the thing in the comments, but there was no national, there's no real social network embedded in the web, right? So, and then at the same time, you had these kind of siloed media experiences, like Jesse mentioned, Spotify, Netflix, the Washington Post reader, a lot of media was coming online in a very, in a very real way. You were, you're not going to movie theater, you're watching things on Netflix. So why not combine the two in an interesting way? Because some of these things are social. Listening to music is very social, actually, right? Or engaging with a piece of content or commenting on a political opinion is very social or antisocial. But either way, you're engaging with it with other people. <clears throat> so you have this thing called Open Graph. And what it amounted to is basically the frame implementation, just to get technical for a second. You've got these meta tags on top of the page that say, you know, OG, you know literally OG, right? Open Graph like listen, read, this is the piece of content, left arrow. It was a way of kind of communicating back to Facebook or whoever the main publisher where this thing was going to be embedded in, that like, hey, these are the details of my experience, right? And so why didn't it work? It was like a massive flop, by the way. It was like a disaster. <laughs> the ads team also built a bunch of ad stuff on top of it called Sponsored Stories, whereby you'd be able to boost the edges that Spotify spun off. So like the idea being that some content producer would boost the edges of their, none of it worked. And why didn't it work? Um, it, it wasn't this engrossing experience that Jesse was describing, right? Like it wasn't the case that somebody was vibing to a thing in your Facebook feed and then there was like a play button and you could join them listening. It, it wasn't an immersive experience. It wasn't the fact that someone published a thing about why Apple was a good investment and suddenly I could engage with it. It was still clicking away to go to this other app. And then maybe you saw, oh, you know, your friends are also using Spotify, but it wasn't a very enmeshed experience. And it wasn't, you know, permissionless to use a web free lingo. Like it was all API calls at the end of the day to Facebook. And no one really trusted Facebook to like curate this thing. Also, it was, it was spammy. People, users didn't like, uh, you know, right. seeing the fact that I had listened to the same song 10 times in a row. I remember somebody snarkily replied, we get it, Antonio, you like cake. Stop listening to it, right? Because it would post all the edges. And then, of course, Facebook saw the growth and thought it was impacting negatively growth. So they started downranking the open graph edges. And then all these companies basically got a little screwed. They had invested in this Facebook relationship. And well, sorry, I'm, I'm, I followed that until then. Why was it hurting them? It was annoying. Be, <laughs> there, mm. It's funny. There, there, there used to be the main feed and this thing called ticker on the right. That was literally all the open graph edges. And it was literally just what everyone was doing in the world. But it was it was terrible. It was like, imagine Venmo times 100x, like literally every little petty thing that people were doing on the outside web, your entire social network, you'd see it. Like at some point, it's overwhelming. You don't want to really engage with it. It was it was it was it, it was, could, it was super noisy. That. Okay. It was super noisy. People annoying. weren't just doing on Facebook, but anything. Antonio bought a, bought a movie pass on uh, Fantango. Okay, boom, come, comes up. Right. And yeah, it, it just didn't work. But And, and then again, what, what also didn't work is what is working for frames. And I'm going to sound like a Farcaster shell for a second, but just think it's the frames thing. You know, frames is almost literally like an iframe in a way. But again, the identity and the payment is such that I can transact with the thing, the experience inside the frame, which to be clear is not a Farcaster experience very directly. Rumors are we're going to have real on-chain transactions soon through frames, which I imagine they're going to have to enable. And it's just, it's just way more interesting. We've figured out a way to run app Y inside app X in a seamless, permissionless way where the user can just engage and do the thing. And again, like Jesse was saying, this is, Web3, this is very Web3 native. Web3 people, like in a Telegram bot, I don't know if people have the experience, you know, you get a bot message and you start transacting on the DeFi exchange through your like messaging app, right? And it's, it's just this very embedded native experience that I think is a very Web3 native thing that again is almost impossible to engineer in web two, which is why people are freaking out about it. Cause it's, it's actually quite interesting. I got a, I got a shout out. Um, so Mark, Mark Andreessen started a company that like he's, he's not well known for, which was Ning, which was a social networking company. And he has this blog post that I, I can't think of the name of it right now. Um, where he, he basically described sort of what, what Antonio, the, you know, the description Antonio just gave of frames where you, you build app, X instead of that Y, like that was the vision for, for Ning, as, as I understand it. And I think it was trying to sort of um, improve on, on uh, you know, early iterations of this idea. Um, the blog post I'm thinking of basically describes Web3, but was written in, in 2009 or something like that. Do you, Antonio, do you, know, do, you know, do you know the one I'm talking about? I'll, 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 I'll have to find it. I'll have to find it after the show. But, but anyway, Mark, Mark's been thinking about, um, about this idea for a very long time. And I remember when I first read this this post in in question um 
probably 2017 or 2018, it, you know, I immediately thought this is exactly what Ethereum enables. And, um, and, and, and that I think, you know, fast forward now, you know, 2024, um, we're finally starting to see it happen. And, and like the reason people are so, seem so excited at developers in particular is, um, that, you know, composability is, is sort of what we're talking about. Composability of one app inside of another. And that composability is something developers have been really excited about in crypto for a long time, myself included, right? Like the fact that I can take smart contract A and, you know, compose it with smart contract B and no one, I don't have to ask anyone permission to do that. I can just put the two together. Um, that's, that's been really exciting for developers. But now what we have is composability for end users, right? Which is in, in this front end experience like Warpcast, I can start using some third party app and under the hood, it's, we're connecting all the smart contracts. But at the user experience, user interface level, we're starting to, you know, have seamless integrated experiences. And, th- and that's what Facebook never really got to, um, in the first iteration. It was, it was, you know, a one way door. They were kicking out, mm. you know, activity feeds that were kind of noisy. And then, you know, you couldn't do anything with them. You had to go out and leave the site. So just that, that's where it kind of hit a wall and, and Web3 potentially does not. It's funny. This, uh, frames is coming at an interesting time with, um, actually Chris Dixon's book being released as well, totally. which harkens back to kind of describes this uh, It's a good book. People should read it if they haven't read it already. It's um, like, you know, what, what web one looked like, very open web two, also relatively open at the beginning, then web two starts to get clamped down. And now we've ended up where we are today, right? Facebook, Amazon, Google, et cetera, basically control, you know, 95 plus percent of the Western uh, internet. So maybe Antonio, take us back to 2005 energy, like 2008 energy, whatever it may be, like Web 2.0, Ajax, <laughs> open, you know, I don't know if you were doing that stuff in 2005, whatever, whatever it was, open, the open web energy, like what, what did this look like? In 2005, I was a grad student at Berkeley, and the most stressful decision in my life was what pastry to order at Cheeseboard in the morning. Those were, <laughs> those were, those were the days of utopia. I wasn't worried too much about tech at the time. Um, but uh, I mean, I can definitely remember the time more like, 2008 or nine, where I'm, I'm literally sure. in South Park in Soma in San Francisco, by the way. And like Twitter was invented like 100 yards that way. And literally every company, GitHub is over that way. Like every company that mattered in consumer web was within five blocks of where I'm sitting right now. And uh, it was super exciting, right? Like you'd watch, you know, you'd see Brian Chesky of Airbnb walk on the street. All the VCs were in the blue bowl across the street. Um, it, the feeling that, and I moved here from New York, right? The feel, as an urban comment, the feeling that you were at the center of something really big. Like it was pretty clear that like all this stuff was going to change everything. And, it, you know, a, a lot of tech is like super shilly and crypto in particular. Oh, we're going to change the world. But then you like, I lived in Barcelona for a while after Facebook. And it's like all of downtown Barcelona's Airbnb hotel, basically, right? Like literally, which isn't great for the city, by the way. But it's, um, or you go to Uber and there's riots over the Uber drivers who are obviously right. running outside of the taxi paradigm. It's like. It, you know, there were downstream effects, not always positive, by the way, of, of tech. And it was just like a super exciting thing that the world was getting, your life was getting intermediated by this. People forget that. Like, I'm right about the first iPhone. I guess, I guess it came out in 2007. And by the way, I haven't actually tried the Vision Pro yet. One of the guys in, in the office bought one. But like the first iPhone actually wasn't that exciting. and actually wasn't better than my BlackBerry. But eventually it did get there, right? After a couple of years, it was like, oh, wow, this is like, you know, the little blue dot yeah. on the map was like life changing, right? Like we didn't have blue yeah. dots and maps. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it, it feels in that way, it's, it's, there's a natural gushing kind of excitement about it. Um, and again, yeah. it's like, oh wait, you can wire together all these things you couldn't wire together before, right? It's kind of like when the app store yeah. launched, right? The, the first iPhone didn't have apps by the way, or not like third party apps. But then once that launched, it's like everything just went whoosh, right? So it, it yeah. feels like this energy basically got, it was a whoosh of energy and a ton of, uh, you know, you talk about this area in San Francisco and everyone's building all this stuff. And it feels like there was a moment in time when, whether it's open graph or Twitter rescinding a lot of the API access, all of this, basically all these companies had raised a boatload of venture money and they were, they're all composable with each other. Everyone was building on them. Then they said, Oh crap, we got to make, go make a bunch of money, get our valuation higher. And they just in one fell swoop, just clamped down and sh- kind of, shut off this open web, shut off the composability. And that is what kind of turned into the internet as we know it today. And when I think of Jesse's post with headless marketplaces, and I think of what Farcast was doing with frames, this is a return to that internet. Jesse, would you say that's a fair framing of this? Yeah, I mean, cer- certainly that's the hope, right? Is that, um, and, and I think it's, it's, it's more broadly, it's not, this is not just frames, but crypto more broadly is, you know, a, a hope of returning to 
this more open, permissionless, composable internet. And you mentioned Chris's book, like that's what it's all about. Right? It's that's that's he's making the case for crypto as this return to the open internet. Um, and 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 I think that's you know that he, he's doing it in part because you know people outside of crypto have this negative, very negative perception that it's all speculation and it's all casino games. Um, but when you start to see things like Frames and and, and Farcaster, you know, give end users this visceral experience of the permissionless, composable, tech, you know, underlying technology. I, I think that you know that's really exciting because it gives you know it, it puts a head on what you know what Chris is describing in this book in a, in a very real way. Um, real, I found the, the the Mark Andreessen blog post. It's actually called um, the the three types of platforms you meet on the internet, um, and it's from two thousand seven, and he describes three different types of platforms, level one platforms, apps run elsewhere and call into the platform via web services API to draw on data and services. Okay. So that's, that's, you know, basically what Facebook was doing, right? It's like you, the, the, the apps run elsewhere, they call into, you know, log in with Facebook and you get some, you get some data through the API. Um, yeah, there it is. So, and then level two platforms, the apps run elsewhere, but inject functionality into the platform via plugin API. And I think that's, you know, that, that, that would be like the limited, very limited functionality. It's like, yeah, no, that's what you're describing on Instagram, right? Like, you know, the app runs elsewhere, but you can press the buy now, buy now button for the t-shirt on Instagram. And then the level three platform. And this is where, you know, when I read this for the first time, I thought, man, this is maybe this is, you know, this is crypto. Mark was describing, you know, blockchains, um, but in 2007, before any blockchain existed in a level three platform, an app runs inside the platform itself. The platform provides the runtime environment within which the app's code runs, right? So that's a blockchain, right? <laughs> that, you know, Ethereum, Solana are running the code. And it actually, you know, I think the synthesis of this is, is you know, these level three platforms, blockchains, they actually, in, actually enable the full-throated level two platforms that he was describing where, you know, the apps can run elsewhere but inject functionality into a front end. And instead of it being through an API, it's actually through the level three platform, the underlying blockchain. Why? What enables this, Jesse? Why is crypto, uni uh, crypto uniquely positioned to do this? Is it about the this transaction log? Is it about your identity on chain? Like, what what is what is unlocking this? Yeah, it's it's it's, it's kind of, I mean, well, in short, it's 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 the thing that blockchains uniquely offer to the world, which is they offer this permissionless computing platform, um, on top of which you know users own their identity through their you know through which is in the form of a wallet. They own their data, which is associated with that wallet, and is open for you know for anyone to to, to reuse. Um, and they own their money. Um, so so developers can deploy any application onto these you know onto these blockchains. You know, Chris likes to call them Chris Dixon likes to call them computers, and I think that's a very apt metaphor for them. They are you know their blockchains are computers, and they run software, and then the users interact with them from the edges of the network, and they own their identity, money, and data. Um, and, and so the result is you can bring, you know, you can deploy applications, anyone can compose them into new experiences, and then you can bring those applications to the users wherever they are and access those users' identity, money, data, and do all this without asking anyone for permission. That's, that's the big, you know, the big promise of, of blockchains. And it's, I think what we're seeing with, with frames, does that make sense or and, and, any questions there? No, no. That may, I mean, yeah, it makes sense to me. Um, take us, take us deeper into frames. So maybe I don't, I don't know if this is a question for Jesse or for Antonio. What, what is Farcaster? Um, I think a lot of people think of it as an app. It's more of a protocol. And then what, what happened this week with frames? Sure, I can take it. Um, I mean, I, I, it's a point of order. You know, I, I guess you would use it for those interested. You'd go to warpcast.com to actually use it. So Farcaster is the protocol, which is the underlying layer. Again, the protocol sort of app distinction. Um, you know, and Warpcast is is the actual app. Again, it's the analogy of everyone cites is like email. There's a there's the SMT protocol, and then there's Gmail that you use on top of it. So again, it really just to hit. I was going to show Chris's book because I have a copy of it somewhere. But like Chris's whole thing is how this you know the protocol. It's it's going back to web one in a way. It's actually it's actually a piece of boomer nostalgia. <laughs> oh, there we go. There we go. There we go. There we I'll go. show it for him. Um, yeah. I, I've even got a baseball cap. They sent me a baseball cap for it. Um, but yeah, the, the, so Farcaster is the underlying protocol, a lot of which, frankly, is not on chain, actually. Your identity is on chain, but actually the messages are not. <laughs> They're actually in these centralized hubs, and we're running one at Spindle, actually, because we're doing some analytics over it and stuff. But the, the idea is that anybody can skin an app on top of it, right? So like, and, which frankly solves a lot of the problems that are inherent in social networks, like content moderation, 
you know, pornography or bad content, spammy bots, like all those problems are in some sense solved at the app layer, not at the protocol layer. So you can post all you want, but we're already seeing it, by the way, in WordPress. People are starting to, you know, dumb reply guy comments and Dan's like Banhammer, not Banhammer, but like downranked in the feed, right? So the app just says, look, yeah, you can use another app that gets you all the crappy shit if you want to see it, but at least on WordCasts, which is the biggest app that's being used on Forecaster, those those replies will not be seen there. And so there are moderation tools, to be clear. It's not a it's not a free-for-all. I started a channel on Forecaster. You can you can use what are called warps, which are kind of an off-chain point system currency, and start a channel. I am I am the admin of that channel. If anyone gets out of hand, I boot them and <laughs> I downrank their stuff, right? So there is accountability. It's not it's not a free-for-all. It's actually way more polite, at least now, than than Twitter. Um, and yeah, the, the frames thing, yeah, again, looks like an iframe, if you know what that means, basically a square that's exposed to another developer. You literally just share a link to a site that has the appropriate open graph tags on it. You don't even see it, but they're kind of embedded in the site. And then that gives you functionality. So somebody, as, as, a, as an example, I did in my post, somebody ran a Doom server <laughs> inside. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a great experience. It's a little slow trying to play Doom, you know, streaming through a, through a window. But the idea is they had like left, right, forward, and shoot buttons in the OG tags. And so those buttons appeared in the actual embed. And then the, the server was streaming to you at a kind of reduced frame rate, the actual Doom experience. So you could actually see Doom inside Farcaster, which is kind of a joke. It's like a Reddit joke, right? Like, oh, does it, but does it run Doom? And so like, yes. <laughs> and the uh, the engineer who did it, Cassie, has this hilarious blog post describing how she actually managed to get Doom running inside, inside France. So that, that's the idea. It is a por- it's what Facebook couldn't enable, going back to the open graph conversation. Like, here's a little portal to another app in which you're kind of auto-logged in because you have an underlying, you can associate a wallet to your forecaster experience. So you have an FID, which is like your Facebook ID, right? Like just your user ID, but then you have an associated wallet. And that wallet is the identity. And so everyone, again, the, Web3 is about getting everyone to agree on common protocols and standards in a world in which it's become these fiefdoms of, of social networks. It's like, no, we all agree that. Ethereum or optimism or whatever chain you're on, that is the identity system. And if you don't like it, well, sorry, you're just not, you don't get to play in this pond, right? And so everyone agrees that that Ethereum addresses you. And so they can do things like, oh, you know, reveal to Mint, someone sends you the Mint and you actually receive it inside your wallet and you get it because Farcaster knows what your wallet is. I'm not sure how they're going to implement the transaction, but I'm I'm sure you're going to be able to do on-chain transactions through, through frames at some point. And what that means is, yeah, potentially... You know, you're somebody is posting, somebody's sharing a piece about, I don't know, some token that's doing well. And you might actually have a trading widget right there with your favorite marketplace that says, hey, click right here to transact. And again, the experience we said of like, hey, can I go buy, you know, Facebook stock if I'm reading a story about Facebook? No, like that'll never exist in Web 2. It just it will never be implemented with the existing Web 2 stack and Web 3. It's actually not that hard to do. Um, and so right. that's that's the frames experience. And again, it, you know, it's going to it's going to get more exciting. Right. Like literally just today, Dan launched video in Farcaster. Right. So imagine can you have video in frames of entry? Like literally every app that you engage with on the Internet, can you have it embedded in another experience, in a social experience with other people? That's the exciting thing. Right. That's why, again, it is the it is the ultimate open graph vision <laughs> or the vision of Mark. I hadn't even read Mark's post that, again, was kind of impossible to engineer before. But now it's possible. Yeah, and just just want to add one quick thing. I think that that was an excellent summary the um, of, of of the protocol. And um, the the thing that is critical to understand, I really like want to tease out is, you know, Web two tried to do this, and ultimately maybe face there maybe there's some world where Facebook could have gotten there, right? Like where they could have really enabled the like a seamless two way API between like Spotify and Facebook. And you could have listened to your friend's playlist right on Facebook. Maybe they could have gotten there, but why did, like one of the key reasons that they didn't get there is the lack of trust between those two companies. Right. Because Spotify like really had to trust that Facebook wasn't going to screw them and they didn't. And for good reason, because Facebook did end up screwing them. Right. Um, and, and, and so here, you know, the reason this is so exciting, it's an old idea that's new again and, and actually can be realized is that the trust assumptions are eliminated, right? And that and that's because you know these applications that are composing together are on top of blockchains. The users own their identity. The users own their data. The platform doesn't, right? So you, you don't have to assume um, you know trust in in the third party at least. And 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 that's the theory. Um, you know, in practice, everyone's using Warpcast to access frames, right? With Warpcast is, is a for profit company built on top of the Farcaster protocol. And so you know, in order for this to be fully true, I think um, you have to have some you know. You have to have multiple clients. You have to have um, uh, Warpcast sort of honoring the protocol, um, and, and you know. But you're so you're so ultimately subject to the rules of Warpcast when in the Warpcast client. Um, but but critically, the you know the frames um, interop between apps is part of the protocol, right? So the trust assumptions are are, are gone there. Mm. 
for okay so frames feels like this neat little playful thing kind of right now but i think there's a bit you know you can i saw you can order girl scout cookies in someone's frame and it's kind of this it's a toy it's like what antonio's talking about when the iphone came out it's like it's a nice little toy okay cool it can like map me some like okay that's cool whatever um but uh, uh, Packy McCormick has a good good piece on this on on frames in uh, in his not boring newsletter, and he said, "Look, it's this nice little tool, right? Like little little playful thing right now. But it, this could be the first domino to fall towards toppling Twitter, killing Apple's App Store monopoly, or creating something entirely unique. So paint that paint that vision for us. Like what what could this become? Well, I mean, I guess the the first thing I'll say is like. You know, I, I kind of look at frames and all the excitement around it as, you know, this this like, you know, lightning in a bottle moment for Web3 social, right? Like we, we really, you know, Web3 social has been something people have been talking about for a long time. Um, but but this is the first time, I've, you know, you've seen a social app in the crypto space get, you know, up into the right daily active user account and, and that are retaining. People are staying, in, you know, engaged here. Um, and it's not because of an airdrop or something like that. It's because of some technical innovation. So. You know, whenever you, I think you, you see these, you know, Antonio mentioned, you know, the blue dot, you saw the blue dot on, on GPS, like that was like an aha moment. I feel like this is an aha moment for a lot of developers in the crypto space about what's what's possible, what kind of new experiences, you know, can be enabled in Web3 Social. And so I, I hope certainly that this is the, you know, the first of many more moments of, of, of people building, you know, compelling new social experiences in, in the crypto space. Um, and, and so Farcasters, you know, is today the dominant social protocol, but maybe in Warpcast is a dominant client, maybe we'll see more clients, maybe we'll see more, um, more social protocols, maybe, you know, for different media types, for example. Um, and, and so, you know, coming back to your question, like, how does this get beyond the toy into, into, you know, how does this change the world? Well, it, it may just be that this is the thing that is the magnet for, you know, entrepreneurs to come in and start building Web3 in Web3 social because there's this sort of playbook that's now clear on on how to you know how to do it how to you know get distribution and so on um so so that's a a very high level answer to it but i'll I'll park it there all right i mentioned them in the pre-roll now i'm going to bring them up again it's arbitrum santi and i are really fed up with these high fees and we're really excited to have teamed up with arbitrum for the next couple of months on empire as the leading ethereum scaling solution arbitrum now powers hundreds of decentralized apps across DeFi, perps, NFTs, gaming, and a whole lot more. The team has showed us everything in the ecosystem, both now and what's to come, and we're really, really excited about it. Arbitrum allows both daily users and developers to interact with Ethereum at scale with low fees and faster transactions. The way the team got me excited was through portal.arbitrum.io. So my call to action to you is to get started by visiting portal.arbitrum.io. Go experience on-chain like it was meant to be. For a lot of Empire listeners, your crypto is not just another number on a screen. It's part of your future. I know Santi and myself feel that way. Our security sponsor of this episode, Harpy, takes this responsibility seriously and is the only wallet security tool that shields users from both on-chain threats and sneaky off-chain signature attacks. If you've ever been in that situation where you're moving quickly, you approve something on-chain, you realize that the address might be a dubious address or you're really hoping that you could take that back, Harpy has you covered. Harpy can redirect your assets to your self-custodied vault, ensuring they remain completely under your control, safe and sound. With Harpy's always-on monitoring, you're not just detecting threats, you're actively blocking and recovering compromised assets from malicious transactions before they can even confirm on-chain. Harpy is the only wallet security solution that protected 100% of its users from attacks like the Ledger one in Q4, which was an off-chain signature attack. So if you're serious about protecting Protecting your crypto investments, it's time to make the switch. Secure your wallet for free at harpy.io forward slash empire. That's harpy, H-A-R-P-I-E dot I-O forward slash empire. If you want it to be even easier, just click the link in the show notes. It's interesting. I'm actually thinking about this in relationship to Blockworks' strategy. So like here, like take one thing at Blockworks. There's, we sell, tick, we have a conference that we host with the, the guys at Bankless called Permissionless. And we sell tickets. And the way that we might sell a ticket today is, well, we build a big audience on Twitter, and then we will post a link to our page on Twitter. Someone has to click the event page. Then they go into our event page, and they then click another button that links them out to Universe. And Universe is embedded Stripe, where that user can then buy the ticket. And with Frames, we could theoretically just set up a wallet 
and post, say, buy a ticket to permissionless, and you can, as a user, on following following you know Blockworks on 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 Farcaster, you can literally just buy that ticket in one click right there. Yeah, and the, and the ticket can be an NFT on Zora, right? Like it's, it's it literally could be like mint this NFT on Zora, and you know pay five bucks for it, and 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 that's your ticket, and you're just hitting the mint button in the feed, so you're 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 promoting it right right there. Um, and yeah, as Antonio was saying, like pro- if you do that, probably the conversion is going to be like a lot higher, going to sell out way faster. Yeah, um, yeah. because or, there's way less friction. Or you could offer 10% off the ticket if you recast it before buying it, for example, and suddenly you have viral growth and everyone's resharing it to get 10% off the conference fee, right? Like you can enable that sort of virality. Like the, the social distribution record bec- becomes, vi- I mean, people are already doing it. It's in slightly spamming. It's like, oh, re- recast before you can before you can mint because that, that that's all public data that you can actually use and embed into the functionality. Huh. <clears throat> so yeah, that's the, the whole natural referral mechanism. I can post a thing and get a kickback. I mean, Think of the ads implications for this for a moment, right? That like everyone who has a channel is going to have their own personal ad network. They share a link. It goes to a thing. They actually get paid wow. if somebody converts. It's um, you can see a whole. You can see the flywheel. Yeah, there. actually, that basically leads to this domino of what I was trying to get at. I think with like Packy's post, which is um, like far off. Like what? What is this? What is the? What? What happens next? And then next? And then next is like, I guess you could imagine a world where like you could set up this headless smart contract that's triggered by like uh i don't know all these different apps you have things that you 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 play with all these different apps and if you a user does something on warpcast um then and they have or someone does someone has uh i'm making this up on the fly someone has a thousand followers on warpcast and they make a trade on uniswap then on then on OpenSea, this nft actually unlocks for them or something i'm making this up on the fly but Totally. That, and, and that's like, I think, you know, that's like what you're describing. That's composability is if this, then that, right? Like, and there's a whole platforms, you know, there's, there's, if it, you know, if, if this, then that is a, is a platform that takes a bunch of APIs from web two companies and lets you compose these recipes, right. To do, to do stuff like that. But it's super hard because, you know, you, you have like three different APIs that are, you know, kind of different, like hard to, you know, learn and interact with. And, you know, the user data is siloed between all those apps and, and that's why these things in Web two just never got that big. But in in, in Web three, you know, all this stuff is on blockchain. It's very easy to remix all this together. All the data is open. You don't have to trust anyone, right? So so all all this stuff is um, possible. And and yeah, I think you know what Paki was getting at is, you know, basically when when you have an, an internet that's entirely you know composable in a permissionless way, the 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 limit is just like imagination, right? It's like what what will developers do with all this open data, all these composable sort of APIs that you don't have to ask anyone permission to use, you know, the, the limit just becomes imagination. And, and that's why it goes from looking like a toy to being, you know, to changing the world is like developers will just come yeah. up with really impressive stuff to do with it. Yeah. Uh, Jesse, how do you think about what's happening with frames and headless marketplaces in light of Joel Manegro's 2017 or 2016 post, if, if you remember that, which was um, the yeah. BAT protocol thesis? Yeah, it's a good, something we've been talking about internally as a team is, is um, you know, like, yeah, like, where, where's the value going to be in, the, in this ecosystem, right? And what's the value uh, yeah, that, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, it's so it's, it's, it's a good question. And so I think that, um, you know, so Joel's piece basically makes the, the argument that apps are going to be really thin layers, right, on top mm-hmm. of these very valuable protocols where all of the state is. Um, and, and, you know, th- I think this was a reaction to Web2, where apps like Facebook are incredibly valuable companies, whereas protocols that they're built on top of capture no value, right? The protocols are thin in Web2 and the apps are fat. So his argument is Web3 inverts that. I, I think, um, I, I think you know, I generally agree with, with Joel that Web3, in Web3, protocols um, can be fat and can capture value. Um, where, where I'd say, like, my thinking has evolved since he wrote that post is, is you know, I don't know that um, apps are necessarily thin. I think you can have apps that um, that capture value too. And in other words, it's not necessarily a zero sum game. Um, maybe, maybe a good example, which is not, you know, related to Farcaster and frames specifically, but, but I'll come back to those in a minute. A good example is Uniswap and, you know, Uniswap, the protocol, um, you know, Tons of liquidity trades there, right? There's a today. There's fees that are going to LPs, um, and there's a fee switch that may get turned on. Um, mm-hmm. And the protocol is just creating a ton of value for developers that integrate it. Like lots of people have already integrated 
Uniswap into frames, MetaMask and Phantom have integrated Uniswap into the wallet, right? So the protocol is is um, creating a ton of value for developers that are integrating it. And because they're creating this value, my view is, you know, they can step into some of the flow of, of that value that they're creating. And they do that with LP, the fees that are given to LPs today. Um, on top of Uniswap, there's these apps that I just mentioned, MetaMask, there's Uniswap Labs. They're all charging fees um, at the app layer too. And so, you know, they're monetizing their businesses and those businesses are sustainable. It may be the case that these businesses are not um, as big as Web2 businesses were because there's more of them. There's more competition. Um, and, and and that's what I think Joel is getting at, right, is that the application layer gets thinned out a little bit and, and you know, the protocols that under, underlie that applications end up being really big because there's, you know, a whole ecosystem built around them. So I think... I, I think that generally holds true. And in the Farcaster ecosystem, you have Warpcast as one client, one app. Um, and, you know, that app is generating lots of data down to the protocol. There's already an ecosystem of third-party applications building on top of Farcaster. Um, I think the data in the Farcaster network is very valuable. I'm sure Antonio is mining it, um, you know, for, <laughs> for, for, you know, to, to get insights and that advertisers might be interested in, for example. Yeah. Um, and so, so that to me makes it obvious the Farcaster protocol is incredibly valuable or, and, and probably only increase in value, but the apps are monetizing too. And Warpcast is already, you know, they're selling warps, the in-app currency Antonio mentioned earlier, right? So both, I think there's opportunity for value at both the protocol and the application layer. Yeah. It's going to be so interesting to see what happens in the consumer. So I have some, I have two friends who started a, um, a sports betting company and the differentiation is, um. That it's like a, it's got a social feed inside of it, and you can see like, okay, Jesse's betting on the Rams tonight. Okay, like I'm betting on this like basketball game. Oh, Jesse's up big tonight. Like it's all very social. Uh, I I love my friends and I love this company. That is not the future though. The future is sports betting inside of where your social feed already is. I think inside of these frames or X number of other. Yeah. Well, well, it's like like tw- Twitter surveys. Imagine you replace Twitter surveys with prediction markets instead of like, you know, people just voting with, with their, you know, with a checkbox, you can, you can vote with money uh, because the money's already in your wallet. And you just do that in the same sort of form, like form factor that Twitter presents a survey to you. You, you can just yeah. like bet five bucks on the outcome and, and, and do that seamlessly. Yeah. And Antonio, I see <laughs> you must love this because I mean like the affiliate, the affiliate, it's like, it just, it's makes the funnel so damn tight. So, yeah. Yeah, although, I mean, it still leaves open questions of, like, what is the native business model of it? Like, who's the refer? If someone refers a user that you already have, like, how much of it? I, it's an interesting attribution problem, right, of, like, who who actually drove that transaction? And it's it's all very TBD, and there's no playbook, and no one's figured Well, I think, I think here, let me posit a, an idea of how this might play out. And, Antonio, I'm curious if, if you'd agree, or, you know, may, maybe there's some, you know, historical precedent that, that's going to undermine this idea. But I, I can imagine a world where... Um, Clients like Warpcast demand that frames give them some kind of, you know, frames that third-party developers are building, build in some kind of kickback to the interface layer for any transaction that that happens through the Warpcast client, right? So if you're minting an NFT, for example, right, through Warpcast, a client on top of Farcaster, and you're paying five bucks, maybe Warpcast gets a dollar or something like that. And if you don't give them that kickback, they're not going to show your frame. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So as, as one comment on, on the Warpcast thing, like it costs money to use Farcaster, by the way, right? Like, mm-hmm. like Dan is starting to subsidize user growth. So signups in something like 15 or so countries are free. But in, by, by default, I forget what it is. It's like 20 or 30 bucks. You have to pay for storage and the protocol fee. So it costs money to use Farcaster, which obviously is a break to adoption. But you can imagine a free version of Warpcast in which actually the advertiser, the person who's putting commercial content on there, yeah, has to give a kickback. That's another thing, by the way, the blockchain makes easy. More than one person can get, can get paid, right? You can pay the actual publisher of the app. You can pay the referrer who referred the person. You can actually pay the user a kickback or a rebate for using the thing, right? Like money, if, with programmable money, you have lots more interesting business models, which is not, yeah. not how it works. In not only models. more interesting business models, you just have optionality for the first time in right. like what feels like 10 years. Like there's just... There's no optionality anymore in Twitter and Facebook and all these platforms. So that's very cool. Yeah. One, one, one thing that's, impo- I think, important to talk about with, with regard to frames, we've been talking, obviously, we're excited, you know, the community is excited about them. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, fr- frames are like, they are a new distribution channel. They're not a product in and of themselves, right? It's like, a, it's a way to bring your product to market. Um, and, and so uh, I think Dan, Dan tweeted something to this effect and I, it resonated with me. And, and that is like, 
you, you know, you still have to have a product that people want, right? And, and frames is just a, a yeah, new course, way to yeah. bring products to market it's and get distribution. You your, your users. It's the place it's like, right. you're starting, you're starting a cookie brand. Like it used to be, do you want to sell these things on Instagram or open a retail store? Or do you want to go door to door? Another option for the marketer or for the founder or whatever is, you know, let's right. build something big on Warpcast and go direct. Right. So, yeah, exactly. So you still need a product people want, but I think the, the, the thing that's kind of important to tease out is that the types of products that people might want might change because of the form factor of the, of the new distribution channel. Right. So the fact that you can ship the product right into a social feed, does that change the, the design space of what kind of products you build uh, because the, the destination is a social feed, right? So like the prediction market mm-hmm. example, right? Like, you know, today, if you go to poly market or, or any of the other prediction markets, um, most of them, they kind of look like, you know, exchanges, like they're like kind of pro trader interfaces, you know, with, with charts and stuff like that. Um, if you're shipping a prediction market into a social feed, it probably looks totally different, right? It's like, um, you know, b- because you want to take advantage of the fact that it's, it's happening in a social feed. So that's, I think, the, the flip side is you have to build the product people want, but also the types of products you might build that people might want change because the distribution is social first. How easy is it? That's a, that's a really good point about that. Um, yeah, it's kind of like how it, like Instagram and Facebook and stuff changed the fashion industry by pushing it towards fast fashion and folks like Zara like came out of that. So mm-hmm. um, how easy is it to build one of these? Like, like Blockworks. Blockworks is built on Web2 Rails, like WordPress. And like, you know, we've got, you know, our, our web, like, you know, we're not, we're not built on, on Ethereum. We're like a Web2 company basically in, operating in crypto. How easy is it for someone like us to do something like this? Well, important to note, like frames didn't exist even a week ago. I think they they, built, they launched last Friday, <laughs> yeah. and we hosted we hosted a hackathon in our office on Sunday. Um, so so certainly like the tooling is is nascent, right? And it's, it's getting built out pretty fast. But um, you know, as I, I'm I'm unaware of like a frames builder. I saw a request for a frame that that basically is like a WYSIWYG. You know, what you see is what you get builder. So, so you can like make it super easy yeah. to build a frame. That will happen, I'm sure. Like within it, it probably already exists already. Um, so it's going to get super easy to build these things. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's cool. And, yeah, one like for for frames. We 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 built one. Uh, Zach, the the local zoomer, has built a, a WYSIWYG uh, frames uh, editor. It's actually quite oh, nice. easy. Um, and again, it's again all the all the weird open graph stuff is embedded in the website, so it just looks like a website. Like it's, this isn't weird. Like when you go to Warpcast, it's not like where's the frames button. You just share the link, and the frame kind of happens, right? Because when it gets loaded in the feed, it goes and reads the page gets the OG tags and says, oh, shit, this is a frame. Yeah. By the way, yeah. expose this button, expose this action. Then I go press the button, I sign the message, it goes. And so there is kind of this back and forth between the sort of yeah. frame server. I'm, I'm sure if this takes off and becomes the way to distribute product, there's going to be a whole frames as a service industry yeah, of yeah. people who do, yeah. who do nothing but like frameify your, your website. Here, here come the Wixes, the Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. of course. Oh, there's going to be a WordPress plugin to frameify the whole thing. Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. That's super cool. Um, okay. How does this change the importance of brand? So if you can do everything everywhere, brand in my mind becomes 10 times more important, but I'd be curious how you guys think of this. I mean, or, or, or actually brand, I'm going to let you go. I'm not actually sure where I stand on you. You guys go first (laughs) and then I'm going to come up with my, When you say brand, what do you mean? Do you mean like social capital and trust, or do you mean like Burberry and BMW? Like, what, what do you mean by brand? Um, well, like Airbnb versus VRBO. Um, like Airbnb has a stronger brand, so people go more. People go to Airbnb's website, but now if it's just embedded inside of a little frame, like some, it's it's less about. Okay, I'm gonna, sticking with this Airbnb idea, like it. People won't go to Airbnb.com anymore. They will be, Antonio has a house and he's selling it on, he's renting it out on Airbnb. It's going to be oftentimes through Antonio's distri- Antonio's distribution or Antonio's like, uh, you know, t- Farcaster or Twitter or whatever, whatever you want to call it. So the brand of Airbnb is less important. The brand of Antonio yeah. has all, has gotten even more important than it already is today. Yeah. I think questions of trust is interesting, right? Because 
you know, in this trustless environment, what that, what that means is actually in some sense, there's more trust, right? In the sense that there's not implicit trust between app X and Y, but you have to know who you're transacting with, right? And it will be a little yeah. scary. I mean, we're all being framed fanboys, but it's a little weird to like click on a thing and do an on-chain transaction through somebody serving a thing through a frame that you don't necessarily have a first party relationship with, at least not initially. Right. That's going to be a little, that's going to be a little iffy, right? There's going to be some wallet drain attack or some weird shit that happens there, which is always true. Every green technology yeah. has some yeah. level of scamming. It's like, just, that's just the way it is. Um, and you're going to not do that unless you actually trust either the person showing you the frame or the, the who's enabling the frame. Right. Well, I, I think the, tr the, the trust there is going to come from, um, from, from whatever interface that you're using, just like Warpcast is sort of fil filtering out spammy posts, right? Like they're going to filter out spammy frames too. Um, and we, we have a portfolio company blockade that's like laser focused on on-chain security and they're already all over frames and like, you okay. know, trying to, yeah. you know, yeah, trying to make sure that like, you know, it, that, that frames can be easily safe at, you know, for end users. Um, on the question of brand, like my, my take on, on brand is I think it, it, maybe it's, um, maybe there's an unsatisfying answer. I think like on the one hand, strong brands, like they, they will benefit from frames because it's a new distribute, new way to get the brand out there and just reach your audience. And if people already love your brand, like they're going to interact with it, you know, where they already are. And that's, you know, goes to what we were saying earlier, like you reduce the friction, you're going to just have higher conversion. And if you have a strong brand, like that people already love, you know, you're people are just going to engage with it more. Um, but then, but then the flip side is that um, I, I can also see it um, sort of frames commoditizing certain types of brands, um, maybe ones that are like less coveted or premium, because um, the, the whole headless marketplace concept, right? Like you don't need to go to a third party destination that you already know. You don't need to think of Airbnb and type in the website. You can instead just you know access the marketplace where you you can say. You could type in, you know, I, I want to like rent a house and it could just show you the liquidity from the marketplace. You don't know that it's aggregating that liquidity from three different sites, from Airbnb, from Verbo, and just giving you the results, you know, um, where you already are, right? So I think it can commoditize brands that aren't premium, that like people don't, where people don't care as much about the the brand quality, right? And they just want the, the, the liquidity. It's like, uh, you know, flights and stuff like that. Um, you don't really care about the airline that much, right? So um, aggregators play a role and, and frames could be like a channel for aggregation. Super interesting. Um, I want to maybe end with Jesse, your guys' thesis of the ownership economy and how that's evolved over the last couple of years and how headless marketplaces, if at all ties into this, but anything else on fr frames or farcaster or Antonio, anything we, we missed from you about any of this or. No, I'm just, I'm glad we have a name for it. Headless marketplace. We it's, there's been, it's been irking me that there's definitely, you definitely put your finger on something that yeah. is like, it kind of doesn't exist in web two and it exists everywhere in web three. And I'm glad we have a kind of a name for it. Um, so thanks. For that. Definitely better than better platform integration. So, uh, yeah, yeah that's <laughs> terrible. Yeah. Well, I, well, well, I, I do want to shout out bounty caster as I, I should have mentioned them earlier as an inspiration for this. So bounty caster is Linda Shea. Um, and you know, who, who is, she's the founder there. And so very early, Linda's a very early user of, of Farcaster um, and is building this, this marketplace. It's a, it's a bounties marketplace. So, you know, developer and talent, you can post, you know, hundred bucks to, to go build this thing for me. And you post it on Farcaster, tag the bounty bot and, uh, and, and someone can, can, you know, go and claim that bounty. And because both of your handles are also crypto addresses, like you get the money can just flow you know, right through Farcaster to, to the, to, to the end user. So the, this was actually a big inspiration for me in thinking about how this marketplace is because Linda literally built one on, and probably the first one on far on the Farcaster protocol where you could end to end sort of, you know, post a bounty, um, be, be the solver for a bounty and never leave the, you know, the, the Farcaster experience that you're in, you know, which is mainly Warpcast. So that, that was a huge inspiration and aha moment for me. And I just wanted to, to shout her out that, you know, she, she obviously saw this way earlier than I did. And anyway, cause she's building a, you know, she's building one of these things and has been for, for nice. a minute now. Um, shout out, shout out Linda. How does, yeah. how does this tie into your guys' ownership economy thesis, which when I think of variant is like, has been at the backbone of variant since you guys started. Yeah, I mean, it was it was our it was our founding thesis. I think um, you know, so so the key that what what is the ownership economy? It's it's the idea that um, you know, next generation of internet products and services are going to make ownership the keystone of new user experiences. Okay, that's pretty broad. <laughs> what does that mean in, in, in practice? Um, it well, so I think ownership can manifest in a number of different ways. Like 
the most obvious one to anyone in crypto is well, you can own, you know, you can own crypto, you can own, you know, a piece of the internet um, in the form of an NFT, right? Tokens, right? Token ownership is is a net new thing that crypto enables. And we've already got, you know, a lot of net new user experiences um, where that, you know, the token ownership is um, a new, is an unlock for new user experiences. So like, you know, owning some digital gold, owning, a, you know, an NFT, a JPEG on the internet, being part of a community of other people who own that JPEG. These are kind of new user experiences enabled by digital ownership. Um, but I think it's broader than just token ownership. Um, so, you know, we talked today about how your crypto wallet is not just where your money is, but it's also where your identity and your data lives. Um, and, you know, that, that's another form of ownership. Um, you, you know, in the past, you've relied on third-party platforms for your identity and, for, and they store your data. Um, and, you know, you, you don't own it. They can take it away from you, deplatform you, and, and so on. Um, so I think with, you know, with Farcaster and Frames, we're starting to see the utility of owning your identity, your money, and your data. And that utility is, well, people can build new user experiences that come to you, right, in the form of headless marketplaces. Um, so, so that's how it ties in with this, this idea that ownership is going to be the keystone of all these new user experiences. It spans, you know, people owning a piece of the products and services they use every day in the form of tokens, all the way to, you know, people being able to engage with new headless marketplaces because they own their identity, their money and their data. Um, and, and so that, that's, it's all, under, it all fits under this umbrella. And, and that's why the, you know, the thesis of it is kind of intentionally broad because we think this is like a really, you know, expansive design space. Nice, cool. As one, I mean, as one comment on that, can I kind of I'll plug Chris's book again, right? It's called Read, Write, Own for a reason, right? And the reason why he yeah. titles it that is that Web One is about reading stuff, blogs. Two is writing. I tweet. I, I cast. And then Web Three is about owning, which you know, owning isn't that new. I mean, there's been the notion of virtual ownership when it comes to IP and copyright for a long time, right? But like in a in a I've always thought of the blockchain as like a piece of technology from 2050 that drops into the 2020s, right? In a fully virtualized world in which everything is digital, how do you own a thing? How do you sell a thing and own it like you own a house or like I own this iPhone? Well, it's kind of hard to do actually at any scalable way. Like when, when did you digitally own anything as like an average everyday user before Web3? Well, you kind of didn't, right? Like maybe I own the IP to Chaos Monkeys or, you know, Jesse founded a company. He owns, partially owns the IP in the, in the company, but common digital ownership of digital goods was kind of strange and unheard of. And it's not something that was typically, it's not securitized exactly, but put in a way that you can actually sort of get your grubby little hands on it. And that's what Web3 is about. It's like in a world in which we spend our lives in digital representation pixels that we're staring at right now, more than like the real world. How do you own that? I mean, what are NFTs, but kind of enforcing rarity, right? And saying, well, this is like the rare ape who does whatever. And before anyone laughs at the ape thing, Long story short, I was shopping for a diamond a couple weeks ago and sitting there looking at the four C's and it was like shopping for like a board eight, right? Like diamonds are worth nothing. It's all like a scam, right? But oh, if the clarity score is H1 instead of S1, ooh, then it's like $500 I thought, I thought more carrot. For a watch. I thought this looking for a watch the other day. I was like, this, I like I, I'm, I'm <laughs> right. NFT shopping right now. Yeah. Right. Watch, watches yeah. are physical NFTs basically, right? Yeah, yeah, so yeah. it's like yeah. the blockchain is just taking it to the digital realm. Things that have existed yeah. in kind of various nascent form and other markets. Yeah. Well, yeah. Go ahead, Jesse. No, I, I was going to, I was going to say, you know, I, I worked uh, with Chris and Andreessen and, and um, you know, the, 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 the first A6ND crypto fund was launched 2018. And, you know, Chris had at that time, this, this amazing post, why decentralization matters. Right. And um, I think, you know, for anyone who's, who's thinking about picking up read, write, own his book, you know, go, go read that blog post first. It really explains, you know, what it explains why decentralization matters. And, and it, and what he talks about there and in the book is permissionless interoperability, permission, you know, permissionless composability, these things that we had on the open internet that we no longer have today until web three. Um, and, you know, I, I think the, um, the, there's these competing uh, like ways to think about crypto. One is, you know, blockchains is a new kind of computer that enable this like permissionless interop and, and the other is ownership. The, 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 you know, the synthesis is that they're, they're very closely interrelated, like, you know, the, the owner and, and I've obviously always gravitated towards ownership as the thing that matters for, for end users, because it creates new user experiences and the permissionlessness is what matters for developers. Um, and so anyway, just, you know, just want to, again, plug Chris and like, it, it goes way back to that, that old blog post and, um, would recommend that too. Nice. Yeah, that book is like, if you want to explain to your, you know, your your dad or your partner or whatever, like, what is this crypto stuff about? 
And I think that was, I've, I've talked to Chris, it, like that was his aim. Like, this is the book yeah, you want to yeah. buy or yeah. your congressman potentially. <laughs> like, what is this crypto thing about? It Just explains like Capitol level. Hill with a uh, with, uh, read write down. Oh, oh, I, oh, I suspect they are. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm sure Andrewson's uh, well ahead of that. So anyways, Jesse, uh, Antonio, thank you guys for coming on. If, um, if folks Thanks. are raising right now, I'd really recommend checking out Variant. They do a lot of early state, pre-seed, seed, series A, um, investing and uh, if they're marketers listening to this, uh, spindle.xyz would highly recommend getting in touch with Antonio. So yeah, Jesse, Antonio, thank you guys for coming on. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Hey everyone, Jason here. Thank you so much for watching today's episode. Wanted to take a quick second to thank today's title sponsor, Arbitrum. We know you are tired of on-chain experiences that have unaffordable fees and frustrating transaction speeds, and that's why we partnered with Arbitrum. You can experience frictionless trades, lightning speed, and lag-free transactions, all for pennies per transaction. Explore Arbitrum's expanding ecosystem at portal.arbitrum.io. That's portal.arbitrum.io. IO. See you for the next episode. Hey everyone, thank you so much for watching today's episode. Really hope you enjoyed it. We wanted to take a second to just remind you about our upcoming Digital Asset Summit in London, March 18th to 20th. Santi and I got your back. Seats are limited. If you heard it earlier in the podcast, there's a little competition running at BlockWorks to see who can drive the most number of tickets. So when you register for the Digital Asset Summit, make sure you use our code. See you in London.